Tonight we're going to be reading from 1 Kings 16 and 17, uh, verse, or chapter 16, verse 29 through chapter 17, verse 6. This is the beginning of the uh, story of Elijah. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the book, from the brook. This is the word of the Lord. In elementary school, a group of boys and I would often play uh, soccer during our recesses, and it was mostly good, but we had a problem player. Brian was probably the smallest boy in our class, and he was not one of the cool kids. You know how every class has the cool kids and the not-so-cool kids and the really not-cool kids. And Brian was one of the really not-cool kids, but he wanted to be cool. And somehow he got it in his head that if he helped some of the cool kids score goals during recess, he'd be cool. So regardless of which team he was on, he was always trying to help certain people. And he started out being kind of sneaky about it. You know, he'd pass to the wrong person by accident, or he'd miss a wide-open goal or some things like that. But then after a while, he got really open about it. If someone passed him the ball, he'd yell, hey, I'm helping you out, and he'd pass to someone on the other team. And he volunteered to be goalie, and then as these guys were coming down the field toward him, he'd yell, hey, if you get past that defender, I'm not going to stop the ball. It got really confusing after a few days when Brian couldn't decide which team he thought was cooler. So one minute he'd be going one direction, and then later in the same recess he'd be going the other direction. And sometimes it seemed like he even lost track of which team he was trying to help, so he'd be passing to totally random people and taking shots on both goals within like two minutes. He was always, always playing for the wrong team. And eventually, even the cool kids got so sick of it that one of them, I think his name was Greg, just walked up to Brian one day and said, Brian, stop playing for the wrong team. Get with it or get out. Now, in the Elijah stories, that's actually a pretty good summary of what's going on. 
the Israelites are going back and forth. They're flip-flopping. They can't decide what God they want to serve or what they want to do. And so Elijah goes to them time and time again and tells them, stop playing for the wrong team. Elijah's name literally means the Lord is my God. The Lord is my God. And that's the message he wants to get across to the Israelites of his time. A lot of the message of the story of Elijah boils down to this question. What other God is really like the Lord? Who is really like the Lord? And the subtext to that question or the follow-up question to God's people is which God, which God will you serve? So let's start out tonight by looking at Baal and Ahab. Baal and Ahab. Much of the Elijah story is driven by a tension, or you could call it a contest, between the God Baal and the true Lord God. And Elijah is on the Lord's side, and Ahab is the main character on Baal's side. And we often think this is just a religious contest, but it's actually a religious contest mixed up with all kind of economic and political concerns. My older boys and I sometimes play this computer video game called Civilization. And in that game, you're in charge of one particular civilization, country, whatever you want to call it. And you have to manage all of that country's political stuff and all of its building and its military and even its religion. And the goal of the game is that you conquer or at least you get friends with and you take over the whole world. So you always have to be interacting with all the other countries in the world And the game requires that you be thinking at several connected levels. So if you agree to trade with Australia, maybe Brazil's going to get mad at you. If you adopt Canada's state religion, maybe Denmark will be your friend too. And so on and so forth throughout the game. And to play the game successfully, you've got to pick the right allies. You've got to pick the right mix of economic and political and religious allegiances. And you've got to keep that all balanced to make things work out the best for your country in the end. If you've ever wanted to rule the world, this is the game for you. And we won't talk about what it means that all of the Lancer guys like playing a game where you rule the world. Another topic for another day. But basically, that's the kind of game that Ahab is playing here in 1 Kings. He's not just changing up the religious rituals or building a different temple for the people to go to on the holy day. He's changing everything. Instead of having God's people depend on the Lord to provide for them, Ahab wants Israel to depend on his, his economic, political, and religious maneuvering. Ahab's marriage to Jezebel is at the center of all these shifts. Now, as we read, 1 Kings 16 tells us that Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Sidon, and there's significance to that that our modern ears just don't hear. But Sidon was a coastal city kind of up to the northwest of Jerusalem, up on the sea, actually. And as a city on the sea, as a coastal city, it had access to all kinds of trade possibilities throughout the Mediterranean that Israel, as a landlocked country at that time, just did not have. If you wanted to get into the international trade market, you had to have friends in one of the coastal cities. And so the Sidon connection was a way for Israel to get into that trade game. 
And what's more, a lot of the cities along the coastland didn't really have a lot of farmland. So they were always looking to buy food from countries more inland, like Israel, for example. So economically, a relationship between Sidon and Israel made all kinds of sense. Israel had food to trade, and they wanted to get into the international market. So a relationship with Sidon was a match made in some kind of heaven. And it also made a lot of sense from a military and political standpoint. If Sidon was up this way, the nation of Syria was up this way, more to the northeast. And at that time, Syria was a growing power and a growing threat to Israel. So all the other nations around were starting to feel a little bit threatened. They were starting to feel this pinch as Syria gained power. So if Israel gained some allies from the coast, maybe they could stand up to the political and military might of Syria coming from a different direction. So from a human standpoint, Ahab getting Jezebel as a wife was a real winner of a plan. It provided some extra political and military security. It opened the door to a lot of economic possibilities too. Now all of that involves a lot of human scheming. But what it doesn't involve much of is faith in the Lord God. You know, the Lord God who rescued the Israelites from Egypt. The Lord God who brought them safely through the wilderness. The Lord God who gave them the promised land. The Lord God who kept them safe year after year after year. All of Ahab's schemes didn't really involve much faith in that Lord God, did they? And so given that background, maybe it's not so surprising that part of Ahab's scheme is a shift away from worshiping the Lord toward worshiping Baal. And given that Ahab was especially focused on economic and political security, of all the gods he could have chosen, Baal made a lot of sense. In the ancient world, specific gods were often credited with specific powers. And so if you wanted a certain outcome, you'd turn to a certain god. And Baal was a god of weather and the storm. He was sometimes pictured as a god who held some representation of thunder in one hand and lightning in the other. He was a powerful storm and weather god, a god of the rain. Now, our mind probably doesn't make that connection between rain and prosperity right away. But if you put yourself back in a world where rain means the crops grow or don't grow, and where storms or no storms means your ships make it or they don't make it out to trade and back, all of a sudden, Baal looks like a god who can provide everything that you need to prosper. Baal brought the rain, or the lack of rain for safe sailing. Baal provided good harvest. Baal gave you what you needed to be safe and secure and prosperous. So here's this new God who comes along, who gives good weather for the crops, who gives blessings on your trade relationships, who makes sure that you are safe and that you have what you want. What is not to like about Baal? And so the Israelites and Ahab started to follow Baal as their God. Now, I'm aware that all of that can sound like just an ancient history lesson, interesting maybe or maybe not, depending on what you think of history, but ancient nonetheless. So let's talk about Baal and us now, Baal and us. And it's true that worshiping specifically Baal was an ancient temptation that I don't think any of us have anymore. But we still have our idols. 
we still have other gods that call to us and that tempt us. We have things that clamor for attention and that promise to provide what we need. One of those things in our present context, I think, is our kids' athletic commitments. And woe to the teacher who takes on that one, by the way. I'm a little worried I'm going to be laid low by a rogue soccer ball or something later this week. Watch your back, Matthew. But seriously, in the last few years, how much of our lives, how many of our lives have been taken over by kids' athletics, by other kids' organized activities? The ball games, the matches, the performance, the programs have too often eaten up our lives, eaten up our schedules, and eaten up our priorities. Now, I'm not saying that sports by themselves are bad. I think there's great opportunities to learn about success and failure and a good work ethic and teamwork and all kinds of things. But how many people do you know who build their whole family schedule around the kids' sports programming? And then what time is left over? Is there time for God? Is there time for good quality family time? Is there time to get to know your neighbors? Is there time to serve the needy? Is there time to make it to church? Is there time for anything else at all? Another challenge, and this is one that I think hits all of us even more than the athletic things, is how we respond to advertising. We live in a world where the market is constantly bombarding us with its messages. And by and large these days, if you've noticed, advertisers aren't really selling their products anymore. For the most part, advertisers aren't trying to sell products anymore. They're trying to sell stories. They're trying to sell stories that people will buy into. As I was driving home along Route 83 this week, I noticed a new advertisement, a billboard, at least I think it was new, advertising one of the local fitness clubs here. And that billboard goes on and on about my goals, my game, my this, my that, my success, my, my, my. That billboard could have been advertising a 10 by 10 foot hole in the wall outfit or a world-class facility. The actual facility wasn't mentioned at all, but it was selling a story. Come here and we'll pamper to whatever you want. Come here and you'll have success in, in your exercise. Come here, you can make your own story. Come here, you'll be a better type of person. Come here, it's all about what you want. And that's what most advertising sells these days, a story, an idea that you can be more like how you want to be, that you can be a different, better type of person. Bale wears different outfits these days, but he's still calling to us with that advertisement that, hey, I'll keep you safe. Hey, I'll make you a better person. Hey, I'll provide economic and political security. Come to me and I will give you what you want. And a lot of those things are good things. But as the old saying goes, they're wonderful servants, but they're terrible masters. If we build, if we really build our life on anything except the Lord God, we're going to end up disillusioned, disappointed, and empty. Those other gods aren't real, and they can't take the weight that we put on them far too often.
And so we come back to the story of the Lord and Elijah. The Lord knows that his people have come to depend on a God who is going to fail them. The Lord knows this in the story of 1 Kings. And so he sends Elijah, his messenger, to challenge Baal, to challenge that false god, and to call his people back to him, to the true Lord. And that contest between the Lord and Baal starts right here at the beginning of chapter 17. Remember that Baal was the god of the weather, the god of the rain and the storm, the thunder and the lightning. And the end of 1 Kings 16 tells us that Ahab and the people had run away and decided to serve that god in the hopes that he would give them all kinds of benefits. But now in chapter 17, this unknown guy from some little unknown town shows up before the king and he swears by the living Lord that there is not going to be any dew or any rain. The word of the Lord comes and the contest begins right here at the beginning of chapter 17. If Baal is the real Lord God, if Baal is real, then the rain is going to keep coming. If Baal is who he claims to be, who he's been sold as, then Israel should keep having dew and rain. Ahab's little economic and political arrangement with Sidon is only going to work if Baal provides. If the rains stop and the crops don't grow, that alliance is going to fall to pieces. If Baal doesn't provide, Israel is going to have nothing to offer its new friends, and it's going to be economically and politically vulnerable. Very, very vulnerable. Very, very quickly. Ahab has thrown himself into the contest on the side of Baal, and then Elijah comes along and says, the game is on. If it rains, then Baal is the real God, and let's follow him. But if it doesn't rain, then the Lord is truly God. And then in this story and throughout all of the Elijah stories that we'll see, the people who follow Baal get exactly what that God can provide. And what they get is nothing. But the Lord, the Lord God provides all that Elijah needs. To begin with, right here in this story, he gives him safety from Ahab and Jezebel. You probably could guess this, but kings don't tend to take it real well if you show up and tell them everything they've done is wrong and they need to change everything. People tend to lose their heads when they tell kings that. So the Lord has Elijah deliver his word and then he takes him to safety and he commands the ravens to bring him food twice a day, day after day after day. And he brings him to a brook where he can get water even as the rest of the country dries up and goes to dust. Baal promises economic and political security, but he can't deliver. The Lord, though, promises to keep his people safe, and he begins right here by keeping Elijah safe. We see that pattern in this story that we read for today, and in the big picture of God's work with his people, we see that especially in the life of Jesus. Here in 1 Kings 17, the Lord takes Elijah out to safety. He provides everything he needs. But then when Jesus comes, God's true final prophet, God doesn't take him to safety, but God lets him suffer. God lets Jesus go through the suffering, the darkness, the drought that all of us were due because of our sins. And because Jesus suffered, God keeps all of us safe. 
Jesus suffered all the consequences of us choosing false gods in order that we can truly live with and for the Lord God. The Lord truly is God. The Lord truly loves his people. And the Lord truly provides for us his people. So let's talk about the Lord and us. The Lord and us. The Lord is the only true living God. He is greater. He is more powerful. He is more real than anything else. And so we work to build our lives around serving him if we're his people. In the Bible, we find this bigger story, this story of God taking care of his people and this story that tells us that only the Lord is God. And so if we're God's people, we try to live according to that big story. And living according to that story is really hard and it's really easy. It's strangely hard because living by the story that the Lord is the true God and he alone provides for us means that we often have to change a lot of things in our life. It might mean that we have to give up things that we really like or even things that we love. It might mean we have to make hard choices about what we will and won't be involved in. It might mean we have to get rid of some idols in our lives, and it is always, always difficult to give up our idols. That's the hard side. But there's an easy side to following the Lord as our God too. All those other things that cry out for us to follow them, all those things from Baal to the different gods that we have today, all those gods eat us up and they let us down. The day comes that we just can't make the game work anymore. Maybe we just get too old. Maybe we have an injury. Maybe our kids decide they don't like the sport that we raised them to play. But it just can't go on forever. Or maybe we get the latest gadget and we feel happy for a little while, but then our new phone breaks. Or we finally buy that summer cottage that we wanted, and it turns out that we have to replace all the appliances and fix the roof Or you join the health club and it turns out that that doesn't really make you a thinner, happier, better, more successful person. All of those other idols, all of those other activities and acquisitions can't give us life. In the end, they all just wear us out if we make them our gods. But when we turn to Jesus, his yoke truly is easy and his burden is light. When we're weary and burdened by our false gods, the Lord takes us in his arms and he gives us his rest. The Lord, the true God, he holds us in his hands. And no amount of economic scheming or political maneuvering or personal striving can make us any more secure than the fact that the Lord God holds his people in his hands. The Lord continues to care for us and provide for us, just like he did for Elijah. He doesn't always give us exactly what we want or what we expect, and that's a dynamic we'll see throughout the Elijah story. But the Lord is faithful. The Lord is the true God, and the Lord really does provide for us, no matter what comes. So as you look toward the week ahead, toward the month ahead, toward this summer, If you look at your schedule, 
What God does your schedule say that you really worship? What really drives your decisions of how you spend your time, of what you put your energy to? What is your dream about? Is it about the next accomplishment, the next thing, the next level of competition, the next gadget? Or is it about Jesus? And is it about the new, deeper life that we can find in him? Like the promises of Baal, all the promise of any other idol you can choose, it's empty. Those promises will blow away like dust in the wind. But the Lord is truly God, and he truly provides. Tonight, Jesus comes to us and he tells us, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light.